1: Work Stories is a place for women of color to share their experiences in the workplace. We're no longer whispering these stories to our best friends and partners and then shoving them to the backs of our minds and just dealing. We're talking about bias, equal pay, bad bosses, racist hiring practices, and all the crazy things your coworkers have done or said to you. This is a safe place to tell those stories. The floor is open, y'all. We are telling it all. Welcome back to Work Stories. Today's interview is extremely important and might be hard to listen to for some of you. Cyber Rao is one half of the powerful duo behind Race to Dinner and the critically acclaimed hit documentary, Deconstructing Karen. She's also the co-author of White Women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. Syrah is very clear on the fact that dismantling white supremacy in this country, the thing that causes many of our challenges in the workplace as black and brown women, cannot happen without the unlearning of white women. If a woman of color were to be candid with you, they'd tell you that white women are a source of pain for many of us. We have a long, complicated history living in this country together, and even currently, black and brown Women are very clear on the fact that feminism as it exists today is for white women and rarely considers the needs of or consults women of color. And let's not forget that more than half of white women in the US voted for a loud and proud misogynistic racist in 2016. So it's feeling like y'all got some work to do. Ready to hear more? Let's talk to Syrah. When I was thinking about why I was particularly excited for today's interview, and I was like, I think that I'm not used to having these types of conversations with women that are not black. And I'm used to the burden of explaining why white womanism and how it affects us. It's Black women I usually hear in the conversation. And I'm one of the people having that conversation and it is exhausting. We need a diverse group of voices saying the same thing for it to really hit home for anyone. So tell our audience like a little bit about yourself.
0: My name is Saira Rao. I'm first generation South Asian, daughter of Indian immigrants. And, you know, further to what you said, it's 100% incumbent upon us non-Black women of color to get into this fight. And it's different for non-Black folks because we have two things, right? Uh, Fight white supremacy, also our own internalized anti-Blackness and our own self-loathing and our own casteism and our own colorism. And I'm really working on that now with my own South Asian community and Asian community, because we have played a very specific role in this country to uphold white supremacy, to keep ourselves down all at the expense of keeping Black folks and other folks of color down. So... I, in terms of the work I'm doing right now, I have co-founded a company called Race to Dinner with a Black woman in Denver. I used to live in Denver. I now live in Virginia. But Regina Jackson is my partner. She's 71. I'm 48. So it's intergenerational, intersectional. And very much by design, a Black woman and the model minority standing in intersectional solidarity against white supremacy. And the two of us have dinners, like actual dinners in people's homes with between eight to 10 white women in the United States and Canada. We've done a couple of others. We go to their houses. We sit for exactly two hours and help them to deconstruct their white supremacy, not the white supremacy and racism of their husbands or their dads or the Republican Party, but their white supremacy. So it's very personal, intense work. And we have a book called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better, which is essentially a book outlining our work and a movie called Deconstructing Karen, a documentary which premiered in Canada last month and will premiere in the United States in November.
1: I'm so excited for this premiere. I've seen clips and... And oof, if y'all haven't seen these clips, get on social, get on YouTube. Just the little snippets that I've seen have been, I don't know how you all sit there. <laughs> and, and, you know, stay on your side of the table, particularly um, because people are bold and people really say what they have to say with yeah. confidence. It's shocking the confidence. Yeah. So big respect and big credit for having those conversations at all, but then also having them filmed. And, and having it be a you know a documentary so that other people can see what's happening yeah. having yeah. evidence
0: well, we can't wait. I mean, it premiered in Canada promptly two days later. Fox News in the U.S. did a full five-minute piece, hit piece on us mm. during primetime, 12 million eyeballs, comparing Canada's running of the film to Pearl Harbor and Canada waging war on the United States because a black and a brown woman are having dinners with white women in Denver. I mean, you can't even make it up. People were so upset. I, <laughs> no.
1: I actually took time to comb through the tweets. Yeah. I mean, it didn't only mess up people's days, I think their fall might have been disrupted. You know, I'm not sure if the pumpkin latte will suffice this time. I mean, the anger that I saw over just the conversation and, you know, and having a conversation with anybody about anything is great because you can take what you want to take and you can leave what you want to leave. We all have that choice. And so to get riled up over someone else's conversation, that it's their job to interpret and do what they want with is hilarious to me.
0: I'll tell you what I think it is because truly, I mean, to dedicate five minutes of primetime 12 million eyeballs. to literally like we are two rando black and brown women in the middle of the country like who cares we're having dinners with white ladies in in their dining rooms who cares right Mm -hmm. here's what it comes down to actually it's not about regina and i they could care less about us we're nobodies right we are powerless brown and black women however our pedagogy and our thesis turns out to be right our thesis is if white women stop caping for whiteness and join our intersectional gender solidarity the entire systems of oppression diminish like all of the nonsense is over And that's what they're coming for. They're now seeing, holy crap, they have this huge book coming out. You know, Penguin Random House, the biggest publisher in the world, is publishing this book. We have this huge movie coming out. It's working. And my God, what if white women actually drop the shackles and get free themselves? It's over for all of these systems of oppression. And so that's what they're coming for. And look how easy it is. Wow, white women, if you just start talking about this shit over dinner, it's over. You know, you can get free too.
1: Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch white men in particular be afraid of the power that white women harness and haven't tapped into yet. Oh my gosh, it's just like, we've got to stop it. We've got to stop it because if they start to think that this is a good idea, we'll all be ruined.
0: Yes, like we can no longer, this whole mediocre white male, they're not mediocre white men, they're failing white men. So we can no longer be failures in life and still get paid billions of dollars and have like everything given to us if our white ladies go away.
1: Yeah, talk to me about what your experiences have been with white women to dictate, I'm assuming why you've chosen to focus on having white women be a part of
0: an anti-racist movement. Yeah, the idea is if white women choose gender solidarity over white power solidarity, we can all get free. That's really the idea. And I think for me personally, you know, I used to be a brown woman who thought I was a white woman. I was a I was a brown white feminist, uh, which is really embarrassing and pretty awful. It's it's every bit as awful as it sounds. And I just had a radical awakening. And Regina in the movie, she describes it as a significant life event is what it requires for people to wake up. And I had that happen. Happened. Essentially, my very closest friends on the planet, all white women who I thought were my sisters, to say they disappointed me when I started talking about race and racism is an understatement. They shut me down. They gaslit me. They erased me. They, you know, I'm crazy. I'm imagining things like, yes, I'm imagining racism. Give me a break. And what was amazing is it didn't work, you know, like 42 years in and it didn't work. I'd been gaslit and erased for 42 years. And in that moment, when they basically showed me who they were, mm. when your closest friends who you consider to be family, you who they are, I was like, wait a second, maybe they're actually not outliers. Maybe they're not exceptions to the rule. Maybe they're the rule, which is why, but I mean, we're no longer friends, but I harbor no ill will towards any white person in particular because they're all part of a system. And if you are put through a sausage factory, like we all are, you do in fact come out as sausage and the kind of sausage you are depends on the color of your skin. So I also come by my own self-loathing, my own internalized oppression and my own institutionalized anti-blackness, honestly. And I will be, unpacking it and unlearning it for the rest of my life. It's not like a box you can check. As much as white women love to check boxes, it's not a box you can check. It's a lifelong journey.
1: Yeah. So that experience sounds, can we say traumatic? Oh,
0: absolutely. It was a loss. It's like, it's grief, you know?
1: And I feel like a lot of people listening can relate to you of all colors right now because of summer 2020. And <laughs> summer 2020 wasn't just an awakening for Black folks to be like, oh, my white friends aren't really responding the way I want them to. It was the start of a realization for many people, right? We had like Asian hate crimes going on. We have we have all these things continuing to happen, even things that are going on internationally, not hearing the people we love and care about respond to them, talk about them, spread awareness, or even being willing to engage in conversation. Right. People are getting uncomfortable and be like, can we talk about something else? It's just so dark. It's just so depressing. And you're like, hold on a second. Even after all of this, you still can't see the urgency in your own activism. Right. And so I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening- right? resonated with you saying like, you know, something happened that just clicked for you and, and switched over. So when that happened, were you immediately like, oh, I'm about to be a disruptor. I'm going to be this truth teller. I'm going to like start this movement. Or did it take some time?
0: Oh my God, I wish I could say that. No, I mean, this happened in what, 2016. Look, it's been building my whole life right mm-hmm. like I've known that I'm not white my whole life and Penguin Random House at the back of the book we have a whole like you know discussion guide and one of the questions is when did you decide to stop being silent and I thought about it and I'm South Asian I was in the World Trade Center lobby coming into the lobby on September 11 2001 I was a third year law student at NYU at the time and I left my apartment that morning as the model minority dressed in a cute suit cute heels backpack all of it and I returned home that night bloody without shoes no backpack as a terrorist. So. So that's how fast... You know, it changed, yeah. and I knew then in an instant. You know who I was, how I was perceived on a scale that I hadn't before, and I still remained silent. You know, for for another what, fifteen years. And so, what happened in 2016 is, you know, these quote friends. I engaged with them. I didn't let it go. I didn't allow them to gaslight me, but I I still was giving them the benefit of the doubt, thinking they didn't fully understand what I was saying. And met them for coffees, met them for drinks, met them for dinner. Not only was it not moving them, they were all ganging up on me. They were all talking about me when that didn't work, right? They did what what white all good white women do. They go to their bosses who are their white husbands. So they went and tattled to me to their white husbands who then went to my husband who's an Indian guy and they were trying to get him to shut me up. So, you know, they, they did all the tricks in the book and none of it worked, but it still took me about a year to really wrap my mind around, oh my gosh, these are not just bad people. These are regular people functioning in a rotten system.
1: Yeah. And so at that point, did you just break all contact immediately or what, transpired after they went to your husband and was like, stop
0: her. So my white former friends, when they're gaslighting and they're all their white woman antics, which starts with, oh my God, I'm so worried about you. And then that doesn't work. You know, you need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And then what they do is they start whisper campaigns about you behind your back that always come back to you because you know what white women also do is they always tattle on each other. So I always heard that as well. And then yes, the final strategy was to go to their white husbands who would then call my husband and tell my husband to shut me down. So that's that's what happened with that. But it took a little while for me to realize that it wasn't personal or individual, that they're not rotten apples. They are regular people in a rotten system.
1: Right. Just doing what they've always
0: done. And until then, you just hadn't fully noticed, right? <laughs> well, I did. You know, obviously, we've all fully noticed, but I didn't connect the dots that all of this horrible behavior, like the silence in the face of oppression, mm. I mean, white women's entire, and I say this truly, entire social, socializing with each other, their, quote, community is stabbing each other in the back. So ultimately, like, that's what we say is be good, love yourself and love each other because until and unless you stop competing with each other to be the most perfect person, which doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. it's an impossible goal, you're going to always commit harm towards those who are beneath you, which is us. So stop worrying about us. Take, you know, take your black box and go elsewhere. Take your little N Asian hate lemonade stand and BLM t-shirts and go somewhere else. Get yourselves together. Make yourselves right. Stop hating yourself. Stop hating each other. Mm-hmm. And then you can worry about the way you treat us.
1: Right, right. Yeah, the the black square. And it kind of reminds me of like governmentally too, like the things that you ask for is not what you get. You ask for, you know, policies in place to protect people and you get your face on a coin or <laughs> a holiday that like two people were pushing. Right. Like it
0: doesn't... <laughs> not. Or politics or even it's performative, right? Like, hey, we want healthcare. Oh, we're not going to do that. But you know, we'll paint Black Lives Matter on the street. Right. I
1: talk a lot about with the audience that also reminds me of how the corporate world works. Employers work, right? You ask for better pay and better working conditions and you get a pizza party or a Starbucks gift card, right? <laughs> and it's all a part of the same system. It all works together to retain power, right? Fully. Yeah. Tell me about what you were like in the workplace in your 20s, you know, prior to the even more traumatic event that happened with September 11th. But, you know, what kind of worker were you? Like, how did you present in the workplace? And did you have any challenges? Oh, my God. Yes.
0: So I have <laughs> I have three anecdotes that I can share because I feel like I've lived not nine lives, but 90. <laughs> so before I went to law school, I worked at TV, CBS News in Washington, D.C. for a year. So this is straight out of college and all the leaders of the news organization were were white. And with the exception of maybe two, all of the camera folks were black men. So I spent a ton of time in cars with black men and learned DC really well. And what I noticed is when black folks were shot and killed in Southeast DC, we weren't going there to cover that. But if a white person got shot in Georgetown or, you know, or if a white person, by the way, like tripped and fell in <laughs> Georgetown, that would be a lead story. Yeah. And again, My being the forever hopeful model minority, I went and met with the news director. I made a meeting with the news director who was a white guy, middle-aged white guy. I wanted to go cover, there was a mass shooting in Southeast and like four black teenagers were shot and we wanted to go cover it and were specifically told to keep cruising for news. Um, And so I went and talked to him and I said, I don't understand why we were pulled off of that. And he looks at me straight in the face and he said, white, dead in Georgetown, a story. Black, dead in Southeast, no never a story. White dead in Southeast, always a story. Black dead in Georgetown, sometimes a story. Oh, I I just looked at I I, I didn't even know I was 22 years old, 21 years old. And I just left back to joy. Like what power did I have? Mm -hmm. You know, and I went and I relayed that to the black cameraman. And he was like, Yeah, he was like, you got to give the dude props. He just says it. And so that was my experience there. And, you know, he felt comfortable saying this to me, because I was the good model minority, Mm -hmm. right? And he knew and he was right that I was just going to shut my mouth and keep going. So that's number one. Number two, I clerked for a judge on the Third Circuit who I just found out she died last week at the age of 90. Liberal white um, judge, federal judge, who Third Circuit Court of Appeals, one rung below the United States Supreme Court. So this was like the end all be all for law students to get these clerkships. And I was one of the only non-white clerks in the building. And she would refer to me over and over again as her Pocky, uh, clerk. Like that was who I was, her Pocky. Um, And this is a super liberal white judge. And I ended up writing a book about my experience. It's a terrible book. So I'm not going to even tell you the name. (laughs) But, um, you know, when the book came out, it was a novel. A lot of the articles and reviews had a picture, would have arms coming out of the main. So the, the main character was loosely based on me, like a first generation Indian American law clerk. And they would have arms coming out of the back, drawing caricatures of Hindu gods just totally racist um depictions of the main character and i didn't say anything so like you know silence silence and then finally after that i went on to work at the biggest i would say probably most prestigious law firm in america if not the world on wall street and the very first party i went to on the upper east side this is not dallas this is not richmond this is the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I walked in and the partner looked at me and he goes, you're Indian. And I said, yes. And he clapped and he said, elephants and snakes. And everybody starts laughing. And so I laugh too, and just grab a glass of champagne and like toast his super racist, xenophobic joke. So that's oh, it in a what? nutshell. Like That was my 20s. And it was laughing at jokes at my expense, mm. laughing at jokes at my own people's expense after the September 11th thing, even in my own mind thinking that like people who look like me were terrorists. And you know, people would call it was the if you see something, say something on the subway. Yeah. And I realized that People were looking at me as if I was a terrorist because I had a backpack on the subway all the time. Um, And my even thinking that people look like my father and my now husband were terrorists. So it's the internalized stuff in my mind is the most painful because our self-loathing, that's really sad. That's some really sad shit and we all need to heal from it. Yeah. It sounds
1: like, correct me if I'm wrong, that this book, uh, White Women, is what you might have needed.
0: I'm starting to come out on the other side. Like I say, it's going to be a lifetime of unlearning. Mm -hmm. All the people that I've lost in my life, and Regina always says in this work, you lose jobs, you lose friends, you can lose family members, you know, you lose money, whatever. But what you gain is liberation. And Mm -hmm. what you stand to gain is community. And I think that I'm firmly in a spot of truly not caring what other people think, honestly, with accountability. It doesn't mean that you can just go around being an asshole without Mm. accountability, but really being detached from external validation, number one, and number two, all those friends were not friends. What I've gained is community. And not everyone in my community is my friend. We don't even have to like each other, but we're community. Right. That's what I've gained. And so for me, I, I mean, was the book cathartic? I don't know because we've been doing this work pretty intensely for the past few years. So I would say this work, our real life work, has been cathartic. But the book, which I couldn't be more delighted, Booklist, which is a, you know, a, an advanced trade reviewer, actually referred to it as cathartic. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, what we're hearing from a lot of black and brown women who have been early readers is that they feel seen and they feel like it's cathartic, that they feel like it's healing. And that means the world to Regina and I. I mean, to be honest, we're pretty detached from what white folks think, but to hear from our own Asian, Latinx, Indigenous, Black women community that they feel seen, that you feel seen, that you feel heard. That means everything. Yeah. So this book has
1: something for everybody, it sounds like. You know, white women are reading and unlearning, but also there's some therapy going on for Black and brown women.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool what's happening.
1: So tell me, what's the hardest part? about doing all of this. It doesn't seem easy. So let me know. What are the things that you're like, oh my God, I have to do this part or I have to have this conversation. To
0: be honest with you, two things. Number one, the physical death threats um, never get easy. So that's rough. Um, There's no amount of times you can see people saying they're going to kill your Muslim cunt daughter and drown her in the Ganges. That's not, that's, you don't get used to that. So that's number one. Number two, I would say just my kids in general navigating that. I've chosen this world and this work for their sake mm-hmm. and for them to have a shot of living. But in the process, I mean, I'm, I'm navigating nonsense at their schools right now because there's apparently a posse of white women at one of their schools who wants us out of the school just because of my existence on the planet. And I can't tell them to just go fuck themselves, which is what I would like to tell them to do because my kid's there. So I would say navigating... Um, Stuff with my family and and the death threats are the hardest.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. I saw I saw a little bit. I don't know if you guys had shared on social that that's what was happening as a result of the Canadian premiere.
0: Oh, it's been happening. I mean, I ran for Congress in 2018, so um, I'm used to it but it's definitely ratcheting up in a way because we're now having a ton... I mean, one of the clips that you probably saw from Deconstructing Karen has upwards of 10 million views. So we're just, you know, getting so many more eyeballs on our work and with that will come good and bad. Yeah. So
1: this is my conclusion. Tell me if I'm wrong or right. By focusing these conversations on the power of white women, I am interpreting not just our conversation and the work you're doing, but a, a lot of the work going on out there is like, we just need to give up on white men right now.
0: I wouldn't say that at all. People are like, well, why aren't you doing this? And why are not you doing that? We're like, we are literally two women. We don't have a staff. Right. And, and this whole notion that we're getting rich, I would love if Regina and I were having these dinners on our yacht, <laughs> but we don't even pay ourselves. We don't make, we're not getting rich off of this. Right. You know, you, know, you gotta kind of like pick and choose what you're focused on and so when people say this like why don't you focus on white men why don't you focus on this and that we're like you could you should go do that mm. like you also can have dinners with people so there's a few reasons we chose to start with white women and we are absolutely gonna start working with white men but we we started with white women number one um, as Regina says you know if white men were gonna change anything they would have done it by now um I agree and I would also say for me it's not totally, the same because I think if white women were going to change anything, they also would have done it by now. But for us, two reasons, for me, two reasons, I should say. One, I don't want to die. So the people who are threatening us by and large are white men and they have guns. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really just a practical thing, right? Number one. And number two, I really wanted to start with this intersectional solidarity. And so we have, we do have gender in common with women, white women. And so that felt like a really good place to start. And it has been. White men, it's going to be different. We're not looking for any kind of solidarity solidarity, identity, solidarity, shy of being a human and white supremacy kills everyone, including white men. And humanity is ending, you know, on earth if white folks don't get their acts together. So I don't know if it's going to be dinners with white men because, you know, see the fact that we don't want to get shot at dinner, but we are going to start working with them in some capacity soon. Okay. All right.
1: Yeah. I mean, the safety issue, I, I get it. I would not want to do it. (laughs) So
0: I'm just thinking like, you know, even
1: relationally, right? Like people that we know or you know, know of people, friends, husbands, all of that. Like, I I don't know. It just seems kind of like a pointless, and this is just my own opinion, a pointless hill to climb right now when I'm trying to climb the white woman hill. And honestly, other women of color hill too. (laughs) right? Okay. So it's kind of like I want to see change, you know, with white men, but it doesn't seem like the first priority right now. (laughs)
0: Right. And it's who you have proximity Mm -hmm. to, you know, and I have extreme proximity to South Asian folks. And so I'm very much focused on my own people at this point and decolonizing us Individually, as a community, and frankly, most importantly, like we have to stop the violence against Black folks and Muslim folks. The Islamophobia and non-Muslim South Asian communities is out of control. The colorism is out of control. Castism is out of control. So we have a ton of work to do.
1: Yeah. Um. So tell me,
0: what do you think the
1: release is going to be like of deconstructing Karen in the U.S.? Are you nervous?
0: I think it's going to mirror what happened Fox. So what happened with Fox is the movie premiered in Canada over the weekend of the premiere my God, the amount of hate mail we got. And then when Fox aired, my God, the amount, I mean, so much hate. And in fact, we have one white woman who works on our team, Lisa Bond, and she mans all the email. And the Tuesday after the Monday Fox airing, she called me and she said, I'm laying on the couch. I actually, she said, first of all, I'm so happy that you all aren't seeing this. So she mans all of our mail. okay? And she flags if things are of concern and that we need to bring it to X, Y, and Z. But who, right? The cops? Half the people sending us." The shit or the cops, but she said it's like so bad what's coming in and then. You know, what happened is it's not going to surprise you at all. Black women, black women caught wind of these clips and made it go completely viral. Mm-hmm. And so it's really funny, even in our Instagram inbox, you can see the days where it's like you could you can imagine the words that they're using to describe Regina and I. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's a sea of love, of black love and brown love, Asian love, Latino love, indigenous love. Yeah. And I suspect it's going to be the same. We are going to get completely dragged and threatened by white folks folks. There's going to be hopefully a groundswell of love from black and brown folks. And then there's going to be a groundswell of love from, you know, there are white people who do want to do this work and are doing this work. Mm. You just don't see them a lot because they're not the ones out there with the black boxes asking for cookies. Right. They're the ones who are actually doing the work on themselves and with their people not looking for a platform and a parade.
1: Right. I love that you have a resident white woman. I think that's what you call her on your site. Yeah. And I have heard that before. And I think it's so important to have that buffer. And what an opportunity, especially, okay, white women, if you listen, you should be listening. So I hope you're listening to this, to be that buffer for somebody to take away. Yes, you don't need to see these death threats and these disgusting things said about you when you're trying to enact change. And I'm going to shield you from that and then send you the great stuff so you can continue the work and then shield you from the rest of it. And I think that's so important. And in the workplace, I think there's a lot of that that happens. Like somebody just stepping up and being like, I will fight this battle, like I will be the one in the meeting to do it. And then I will come back and report back on progress so that you don't have to extend yourself
0: any more than you already do every single second of the day. (laughs) That's it. You know, these white women, that's the thing is, as you saw this, you know, on steroids in 2020, they were the first people to black box, hands up pictures of them, you know, doing the most Mm -hmm. while also doing the least. And then by Labor Day, they were like, okay, let's bring out the skeletons and the pumpkins, you know, like, and so we have plenty of white women who've done our programs. We're in a mighty network together who were pounding the pavement, you know, for black and brown women candidates in their cities and their states, for black and brown women entrepreneurs who are trying to start nonprofits, you know, they're super engaged in the work. They just aren't out there trying to get credit. And that's where the work happens.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering when things are actually going to shift. And I'm hoping that when your movie is alive in the good old US of A, Uh (laughs) we might see those people who are already so close scared, right? nervous totally get that but they're like okay now I actually I, I have to like if they weren't already pushed over the edge before with everything that's been going on to many different groups of people like I'm hoping this is the time that it's like you know shit or get off the pot is what I like to say.
0: and that's true and I have said that to people I'm like I could care less if you get on the bus but if you're not going to get on the bus get out of my mm-hmm. way that's it get out of the way. You don't have to get on, but just get out of the way. And that's where I think Regina and I are right now. We are like full steam ahead. Like people love to stop and let us know how much they hate us. And we're like, what about us would give the impression that we give a shit what you think, you know? Yeah.
1: So the last question I had for you is I just wanted to know what's next. Like you've got the movie, the book,
0: the business, Race to Dinner. Like what is next for you and Regina or just you? We're packaging kids books in an effort to actually have kids start learning the truth from the get go. So we have five middle grade kids books called the race to the truth series. An indigenous woman is writing one, a black woman is writing one, a Chinese woman is writing one, a Mexican American man is writing one. So that's happening. We've been going full steam ahead. I think we're going to take a minute, take a little pause. And also we're continuing our race to dinners. Mm -hmm. There's been a tremendous amount of interest, which I think will continue to grow. So we're going to basically do dinners in two cities over the course of a week next year. And right now it's looking like Vancouver. Canada um, and New York City in the fall. So Vancouver in the spring, New York City in the fall with various books, you know, kids books coming out. And I think we're just going to stay on that path right now. We're just going to be doing a lot of events. We're really psyched. We have, um, Our book launch in Denver next week, and we had to move it to a theater and turn it into a ticketed event, and it's it's beyond sold out. So maybe continue to do events around the country. We'll see. We'll play it by ear. But that's also deconstructing our own internalized whiteness. Is what's next? What's happening? Let's keep the you know let's keep going. Um, the the hustle and grind culture, Mm -hmm. and so we're gonna just take we're gonna take a little bit of a pause. I think
1: it could be yeah take a beat and take everything in and, and reflect. I am so in awe of the work you are doing. I'm appreciative of it. I'm excited about it. And it has been great talking to you. And I want other people to be able to follow along with the work you're doing. Let people know how they can stay in touch with your work.
0: I love it. Thanks. Yeah, have them follow us on at race Two dinner on Instagram at deconstructing Karen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also just personally on Instagram. I'd love for folks to follow me there too. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Cyrus book, white women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better is out now look her up on instagram follow the work of her and her partner regina and continue to have these hard conversations if you're a white woman listening allyship isn't about liking people or meaning well it's about looking at your own privilege in this world and dismantling white supremacy one and learning at a time so that we your friends your co-workers your neighbors can have full and safe lives don't cry there's no time for that keep listening and keep working have a good week